You're listening to Mike Check Podcast. I'm your host, Monica Trinidad, Communications Officer at Third Wave Fund. For over 20 years, Third Wave Fund has supported gender and reproductive justice organizations with rapid response grants, long-term funding, and capacity building support. We do this work because young women, queer, trans, gender non-conforming, and intersex people of color are at the forefronts of efforts to transform harmful conditions, but often lack the resources needed to do so. Today, I'm happy to be in conversation with Third Way Fund's former executive director, Rai Young, and our new co-directors, Anna Connor and Kiyomi Fujikawa. Rai is a cat dad, partner, cook, and self-identified Jewish trans weirdo committed to social justice and funder organizing in New York. Anna is a mixed black, queer, gender non-conforming young person committed to resourcing movements and currently living in Harlem, New York. Kiyomi is a mixed race, queer, trans femme living in Seattle, Washington, who has been involved with movements to end gender and state-based violence since 2001. In this episode of Mike Check, we'll be getting the historical take on what third wave fund experienced during the 2008 economic recession, the lessons that were learned from that time, and how those lessons inform our work at third wave today. If you like this podcast and want to show us some love and help our podcast reach beyond our networks, you can do so by subscribing on Apple Podcasts and leaving us a review, following us and liking this latest episode on SoundCloud, or by sharing this podcast on social media. Rai, thanks so much for being with us today for your second Mike Check podcast episode. We were in conversation with you in episode three on the importance of leadership transitions, and we're going to play a snippet of that right now. I got brought on as a consultant to help sunset the work. And in that process, I got access to this transition process that was being held by an interim director where the task was like figure out what to do with our assets because even though we're not getting any grant funding anymore and we're not getting individual contributions, we had assets. Like we knew that we had strengths and we knew that we had things to pass on. Now, before we dive into exactly what happened to Third Wave Fund several years ago, I want to kick this conversation off with Anna. Anna, you just had that brilliant op-ed published in Teen Vogue. And for those who haven't read it yet, check it out now. It's called Big Money Philanthropy Must Support Grassroots Coronavirus Relief. So Anna, what made right now the right time to publish your thoughts on private foundations and what they need to be doing during this pandemic and subsequent economic crisis? Awesome. Yes, Monica, thank you so much for pulling this together. I'm so excited about this conversation. Um, and I think it's super timely. I just want to acknowledge that this moment is really fucked up. Like, we've been doing this work for a long time, and the situation has been dire for so many communities. And now is a time where we're seeing, you know, Kiyomi put a, Kiyomi said it really nicely. The COVID pandemic, pending economic crisis, and the global response has been a magnifying glass on every systemic inequity that low-income black and brown communities, trans, gender non-conforming people, sex workers, sick and disabled folks, undocumented folks, incarcerated communities have been fighting for, uh, against forever, right? And so, you know, in some ways, the article that we published, you know, it's we're in a very new situation, but the response from philanthropy has been typical, uh, to say the least. Um, that is, philanthropy has, you know, has to reckon with the fact that 
the ways in which money is hoarded is never going to actually allow for real systemic change. And, um, you know, at Third Wave, we had already been planning for an economic recession. We had done some work before uh, the pandemic to figure out, okay, what would we do if another recession hit, right? Like, we're planning this stuff, and then we're like, oh, our grantees, a lot of which don't have 501c3 status or fiscal sponsors, are brand new. Their budgets are like 250000 or less. Um, how this moment would impact those organizations is is devastating, right? So, um, you know, I think this article that I wrote has been written so many times in different forms. You know, I, I was just looking, uh, the, Revolu- the Revolution Will Not Be Funded, that book um, by Insight was written and published in 2007, y'all. It was before the economic crisis, you know? So, like, this is not a new narrative, but we're in a moment where... Um, where the, the pending recession and the pandemic has really shown a light on wealth accumulation and on the status quo and how we need to reckon with that. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of hoarding, I want, you know, in your Teen Vogue article, you mentioned this alarming statistic that according to funders for LGBTQ issues, for every $100 that's awarded by a U.S. foundation to an organization, only four cents supports trans and gender nonconforming people with significantly less going to trans and gender nonconforming people of color. So what can you speak to what's happening there? It's exactly what I'm talking about, right? These statistics show how much our people are left out of philanthropy constantly, even though we're the communities that need the most access to these dollars, not only because folks are disproportionately targeted by all forms of violence, um, from uh, have a lack of access to housing, stable housing, job security, and health care, but because we know that our communities have the, the brightest and boldest ideas for how to get us out of this mess. So it's, it's, it's just, it's devastating, I think. Oftentimes we can talk about disproportionate, you know, how disproportionate the funding is, but until folks really see it and reckon with it, the broader folks outside of philanthropy don't understand like what, what we mean. So I, I feel like numbers like that can really highlight what we're talking about when we're talking about wealth disparity and wealth redistribution and how important it is. This is why Third Wave Fund does the work that we do, right? Like we're trying to move resources where dollars never touch or never folks who never get to see philanthropic dollars. And we know at Third Wave that we're never going to be able to fund all the groups. We're never going, you know, Third Wave is a small institution. So it's, it's moments like these where we have to work together to leverage philanthropy as an institution to move more resources and to reckon with um, the status quo. Rai, can you summarize exactly what Third Wave was facing when you came on board to help sunset the organization? Um, and why did the board at that time decide that Third Wave Fund needed to sunset? Sure. Um, so I decided to leave the organization and was gone for about a year. And during that time, it was just kind of the board and the director and an office manager. At that point in 2012, there was there were no more grants coming in every sing- almost every single grant had been either parred down or or canceled at that point the board uh brought on an interim d- 
director whose job it was to shut down the organization. And it was in that process that I came back on as a consultant to tie off grants with our grantees to make sure that they landed on their feet as best we could um, and that we gave away as much of the remaining assets we had to the organizations that we were in a long-term relationship with as a funder. In that time, we convened people who we considered like core stakeholders, people who had been on staff over the years, people who had been on the board, um, founders, of course, um, some key donors. Um, Those conversations unearthed a lot of perspective about Third Wave's main mission not being finished. And also that like, in some ways, philanthropy was not ready for what we were doing before when we were at our peak (laughs) before that point. And all of a sudden, as we were starting to really like get hit by the economic recession and like really start to lose commitment from funders, like movements were picking up steam. There was like way more belief in trans communities, um, importance and like visibility and movement leadership at the time that we were having this soul searching sunset moment happening. Intersectionality was becoming like a commonly understood concept and also like there was a belief that funders should operate this way and kind of like a lack of experience doing that which third wave had they just didn't have the engine and the vehicle to do that and so they were starting to reinvest in things like collaboratives but collaboratives are funder driven they're only funders at the table and the leadership comes from foundations And so when they set out to do something like we're going to, you know, support reproductive justice through a collaborative or we're going to support trans communities through a collaborative, they're missing that part of like there are no trans people at the table because if it's only big private funders that are national and they want to do something here, all of a sudden, guess who's not there? Like the very people who have the wisdom and the knowledge that they need to pull this off successfully. And so... I think that all of those factors, we saw them play out, but we had no institutional power, right? We had no income coming our way. And as a foundation, you need income, right? Your programs are giving money out. So um, I think that uh, because we saw those factors happening, um, we decided as a group that we needed to give it a shot and take the assets that we had left. Um, We had interviewed all of our grantee partners as well as a part of the process to say, do you see value in this work continuing, even if it's a really small shop? By and large, they said, we value Third Wave as a partner in the room who can say things to funders that we can't say ourselves because we're not there. And we see other funders saying that they do what you do, but we don't trust them. I think when we move forward, and decided to relaunch the work, we had to operate off the mindset that just because you're funded now and just because movements are believed in now and just because people are making space to talk about women of color and young people and trans people now, that is not a permanent state of being and that no money reaches the field without a fight, without leadership, without the strong structures in place to get the money to the field without um, analysis that's ahead of where funders are at, but not so ahead that it scares them right (laughs) like it's a dance it's like this incredible dance to get any dollar to this work i had i was catering at the time i was a a line cook who was trained to do that and not be in philanthropy and so you know i felt called to action i saw like maybe what needed to happen with the pieces that needed to fall into place i saw that there was support for this idea 
from the people that mattered the most, the grantees, field leaders, people in my network that um, were encouraging this, and the rest is history. Anna and Kiyomi, what was your experience during this time frame that Rai is talking about between 2008 and 2012 um, as people doing youth organizing? Did you feel that the economic impact from the recession that Rai is speaking to was impacting you? And maybe we can start with Kiyomi first. Yeah, thanks, uh, Monica. In 2009, I lost housing. Um, I was living in a big collective house that was um, a lot of organizers doing different projects. And um, our house had been like established in the 70s as a as a cooperative originally to house some folks that were doing work with United Farm Workers and just had this incredible legacy had been we've found like old photos of um, Filipino organizers like playing cards at the same spots we were playing cards. It was, you know, 100 year old house or whatever. I think for us, it really illustrated um, what was happening across Seattle, which was how much the housing bubble led to gentrification and displacement and really a loss of organizing physical like physical space that folks can be doing organizing. And now in this moment, it's so expensive. It's so hard to just be able to find that space, which I know a lot of other cities are experiencing, but in Seattle, it just feels kind of hyper with the tech money that's coming through here. And so, you know, I wasn't on a fundraising level at that time um, at any organization, but was seeing, you know, cuts at the different spaces that I was in and just like a lot of organizations that were trying to make it through that moment. And I think just the ways that income inequality was exacerbated by gentrification and the housing bubble was just um, very, very apparent in Seattle. Yeah, and for me, as a youth organizer, I I actually felt the impacts a little later. In 2012-13, I believe, I was a lead participant in Fierce's national program. And so Fierce was a queer and trans youth of color-led organization um, that was based in New York City and fighting for uh, anti-policing and anti-criminalization work, uh, specifically around the Chelsea Piers area, which has for the longest time been a queer space in New York City and where a lot of queer and trans folks lived and like found work and that sort of thing. We received funding to actually do this national program where we were going to bring together a variety like of organizations that were working on local, like hyper-local campaign work. So campaigns around anti-criminalization, anti-policing, specifically led by youth Um, black and brown young people, queer and trans young people, sex workers, undocumented folks. And so we we held this convening. Uh, We called it the Connect Our Roots. It was in 2013. We brought together a bunch of groups, and some of y'all might know these groups. So some that I remember are Street Rise and Safe, Young Women's Empowerment Project, Providence Youth Student Movement, Black and Pink, Stonewall Youth Olympia, Breakout, and so many others. We, we had this summit, it was beautiful, it had lasting connections where some of these organizers met each other for the first time and they're still organizing together to this day. Then, so that was in 2013, I believe it was 2014 where Fierce lost funding for that project and just for that project but also lost other funding. And I wasn't all in the weeds on budgeting and balance sheets at that time in my life, but I knew we had lost money. And it was also around that time that Young Women's Empowerment Project also announced that they were closing their, I think they were 501c3 status. Uh, Queers for uh, Economic Justice also closed. And then in 2015, Trans Youth Support Network closed. And all this was happening 
Streetwise and Safe also shut its doors and it was like as if the networks that we had been developing and like really building were just kind of crumbling and it was devastating to the youth-led movement at that time um, and particularly for me to see my political home almost have to close was was um was really hard. Usually foundations get hit in their endowments through the stock market but then they don't stop they don't reduce their giving usually until a year or two after that because it's all based on these kind of projections. And so what was happening in New York City was there were all of a sudden like incredible growth of LGBTQ people of color led youth led organizing groups and in some ways like I think a lot of like community um, collaboration and like positive spirit around queer and trans people of color youth organizing in New York City like I would say that that was probably true around 2008 when I started at Third Wave and continued for a few years Um, and Third Wave wasn't funding those organizations like even though that was like the the like epicenter of like everything Third Wave envisioned for the movement in some ways, in terms of community and approach and all these things, the scale, it was operating at such a larger scale. And our whole point to funders was you can't hold up a group like Fierce as a replicable model if you don't replicate the funding <laughs> for groups like Tyson in you know Minneapolis. And if you don't go into you know rural Washington and support queer and trans youth organizers there that are looking to this model, but the reality is like the model depends on the money. It's not just a model, it's like the resources to fuel the model and to accomplish what needs to be done in ways that are sustainable. And so when all of this work was picking up, we were like, great, like we're so glad that these foundations are finally getting meetings with Ford or with Wellspring or whoever were the big foundations that started to come on board at that time. And we thought our role is to make sure that this money proliferates and reaches places that are under-resourced and not taken as seriously as New York City. Um, And so that was our purpose, was redistribution. But what happened was in that era, we started to see these organizations that were sort of seen as the beacon in many ways, or like, this was the peak, like this is, you've arrived if you've gotten to like the budget size of Fierce at that time, even though still that was small, right? Like it was still a small organization, it was just seen as like that you can't go higher than that, right? And so when we started to see all of those organizations getting hit really hard, um, Queers for Economic Justice, uh, Sylvia Rivera Law Project, Fierce, um, Safe Outside the System at Audrey Lord Project, we funded every single one of those organizations in New York City in the aftermath of the recession because we were experiencing such a surplus and such an increase And we didn't realize that when stocks rebounded, it wouldn't go right back into those places that it was taken from before the recession. We naively thought that like, there isn't a reorganization, right, of a theory of change, a reorganization of like the beliefs in philanthropy. We naively thought, okay, we're going to cover some ground here. We're going to give emergency funding to Queers for Economic Justice, we're going to give some support all bundled up in New York City while funding a lot of the rest of the movement and watch slowly how much not only did it not go back into those particular organizations, it didn't go back into those movements and you in some ways had to start over again and reimagine. And I think it led to de- certainly closures, certainly soul searching around like, what, how are we going to make this work um, without losing ourselves in the process? But 
I think a similar thing was happening at Third Wave at the time, and we had no answers for how we were going to refuel the work, retool the work in a sustainable model in that moment we were in, and in, and in some ways needed to hit bottom and like jumpstart again and have a sort of startup energy, like boil ourselves down to the essential components, the essential message, the essential staff, like nothing else but what's essential, and then rebuild from that, um, which is what we did in 2014. In 2014, Third Wave moved to a fiscal sponsor called Proteus Fund, who gave us a chance to relaunch ourselves, paying almost no money to hold all the operating work of an organization, which, if people don't know, you should know that a lot of work goes into even the most kind of simple and small kind of organizational model. We had all of this incredible knowledge of like how to serve movements well, but we needed to upgrade it for where movements were at right now and also marry it with what foundations weren't doing well, right? And so find that sweet spot. And so at that time, we landed on, let's start with rapid response funding, right? We can have a big impact with a little bit of money we have. Um, and so we started our rapid response fund. That's how Mobilize Power Fund started. Um, and we knew that in the long term, what was really the most important thing was sustained funding. And so we could only operate that when we ourselves were sustained. And so we had a plan for as the budget grew, we were going to slowly introduce um, six-year grants to the field through the Grow Power Fund. And that that was going to be for organizations that were similarly like um, doing amazing work totally out of the limelight of philanthropy definitely non no big foundations radar but like all the same having tremendous impact in their local area in their region um and that like reinforce like optimism around this work right that they were doing bold stuff right that you there are so many organizations that are like the smallest organizations that make me believe again <laughs> in organizing work and i'm sure y'all are nodding your heads like it is both important that this work happen at a local level, but in terms of supporting those organizations and on a national platform, it says, you know, this is where we see what it means to be radical, what it means to do grassroots organizing. Um, and so to lift that work up and to fund it for the long term, it's, it's making a statement. It's not just the money, it's a statement that goes with it. And it's the confidence of backing it for six years that I think tells um, foundations something, right? Like look out for these organizations and look out for this kind of work that's happening and pay attention to places outside of where you're used to thinking um, impactful organizing is only happening, right? So if we're funding in the South, we're not only funding in Atlanta and New Orleans. If we're funding on the West Coast, it's not only Los Angeles and Seattle and the Bay, right? We're funding the whole country. Thank you, Rai, and thank you for naming the Mobilized Power Fund. I just want to quickly say that in the past month alone in April, you know, because we're recording this episode during the, the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, if you're listening a year from now, uh, in April alone, Third Way Fund received $350,000 in rapid response requests, ranging from bailing out and housing trans sex workers locked up at Rikers, uh, to healing justice and mutual aid strategies. And this is almost 10 times the amount that we usually get um, prior to the pandemic in mobilized power fund requests. 
Actually, $350,000 is what we budgeted for all of 2020. So now we are committed to resourcing folks fighting for safe, healthy, and thriving communities as best we can, but we really need help to support this work. Um, and there are some concrete ways you can support our work, which you will find all the links to this work where this podcast episode lives on our website. And that ranges from giving directly to any of our grantees that are all doing really amazing work on the ground. Uh, pledging your stimulus check through Share My Check, shout out to Resource Generation, and donating a one-time gift to help us meet our rapid response requests or committing to a sustained monthly gift. Um, all of these links will be where uh, this episode lives on our website. And actually, I said $350,000, but in the past two weeks alone, we actually received $650,000 in rapid response requests. So actually double um, than what we budgeted for all of our 2020. So just it, it is alarming how much um, immediate relief is needed, but also thank you, Rai, for noting just like how important it is for sustained giving, right? Because we, we faced this before and we're facing this again now and it's going to continue and we just have to make sure that we are giving um, in, in sustained ways. So just wanted to make that note and also wanted to pass it over to Kiyomi. Can you speak to how Third Wave Fund's history and this near closure really informed the ways in which our fund operates today? Yeah, thank you so much, Monica. Um, and thanks for uplifting the Mobilize Power Fund. Our staff is working so hard right now. As we know, groups on the ground are working, you know, even double that. And um, it really does feel like such an important time to be able to rally around groups and show up with support. Um, so that feels really powerful. And also shout out to all the folks that have been able to um, continue to give and give whether that's giving their time or giving, you know, their cash or what whatever ways folks are being involved. Just really want to say we're so eternally grateful for folks um, through that. It's so interesting. When we came into this organization as co-directors, I was like, oh, the 2008 recession and impending disaster that happened after that was really, really is like at the core of where this organization is now, how we kind of think about um, moving through. So um, first off, really what the recession showed us is that philanthropy needs to be different, right? That we need to be uplifting um, these voices in philanthropy that had been calling for philanthropy to be different since forever, you know, and I think by the time I get into rooms, usually um, it's like, let's hear from grantees. And we always hear the same things, which are like, support long term, be in relationship with your grantees, like extend with trust and recognize that you're a supporter. You're not like um, hiring these grantees to like do a certain set of work, like you're actually um, in the backseat and, and supporting rather than um, being the driver of that. And also just to give general operating support, like we hear that time and time and time and time and time and time again, you know, in terms of just how much general operating support, long-term general operating support is needed. Being able to just hear that again and again, like that came up so much you know, I think we also, not all groups are able to do this, but I do think Rye did such an amazing job and um, other folks that were on the fundraising side of recognizing, you know, I want to I wanna bring it back to Anna's um, point above that was made in Teen Vogue around, you know, there's these numbers in philanthropy and you can break them down for a lot of different demographic groups and it's always like, you know, for this amount of money in philanthropy, it's so tiny. And I think I've heard Christina from funders for LGBTQ issues say like, if we're, if LGBTQ issues as a whole, which can feel so mega big sometimes is getting a quarter for every $100. And you know, we, as like, 
uh, trans women of color or, um, you know, folks of color that are organizing within that, we see like even less and less of that. But it's not like our our go-to should be like, where's our quarter? You know, like, how do we get from that $100 to getting that quarter? We really need to rethink the way philanthropy looks as a whole, because even if we're just getting, you know, it would be huge. It, we'd be getting like 10 times. That's an exaggeration, but, all, you know, like so much more to be able to be like, we're getting a quarter for every $100 within that foundation giving. But it's really an opportunity to be like, listen, we got to do something different. Even just sort of the scope of what we should be playing with in terms of um, rethinking philanthropy needs to be needs to be changed. And I think the folks that are doing that on the ground are are individual donors. You know, I think um, what we've seen at Third Wave and what's come out of being able to diversify our funding and be like, okay, we recognize we really want, you know, young women of color, young queer and trans people to find their place in philanthropy and be able to find that also through the gifts they're giving, whether that's, you know, a monthly donation of almost any size, um, that when we're pooling our money together, we're actually able to shift the way that big philanthropy is looking. And there's just so much power there and recognizing that those relationships with donors, you know, aren't transactional. And I do think we've seen so much generosity of, um, you know, cross-class generosity. I think there's so many stereotypes in terms of philanthropy. And I do think in the DNA of third wave since the closure or near closure is really around rethinking how that looks. Can you explain what cross-class fundraising is just really briefly? In philanthropy, it's really common for folks to have a strategy of like, hey, if you give over this amount, then you deserve a phone call from us. And if you give beneath this amount, then we'll ask you to volunteer. And that's kind of like the equation that's set up. And I think what Third Wave is able to do, and I feel like Ryan and Anna have so much more experience um, in the day-to-day of this, also Nicole, you know, just really valuing folks across the spectrum and recognizing that like we need all of us to change to be able to change right like like folks that are coming in at at higher levels that's amazing that's so important and like folks that are doing that monthly gift might be three dollars a month or five dollars a month that's still super powerful and actually really makes a change and I think you know if we have a minute to talk about I'd just love to use the sex worker giving circle as an example where I think institutions were nervous they're like what is this gonna be is is this gonna be something that like get some energy behind it or not and there's sort of this thing in philanthropy where everyone's waiting to see who's gonna like put their toe in the water first and report back on how it's going and when we saw such an influx of individual donors who were throwing down their cash being like listen i know the importance of sex worker organizing and i know the importance of the groups that are doing this and how how much they're not only getting like not any funding but also so much funding is is getting put into um, efforts that are really counter to the organizing that they're doing it um, with a quote-unquote feminist lens and so I think you know through that like once there was this like ballooning of individual donors um, then larger institutions were able to be like oh you know what that is cute actually I could get behind that and it's just like really such an example of the ways that like you know folks who are anywhere across the class spectrum can be can be making a difference within, you know, the system that's not set up for um, non-wealthy people, you know. Thank you, Kiyomi, for that explanation. And this is a question for everybody, but maybe starting with Rai first. What are some of your hot tips for organizations, especially foundations, um, to practice this cross-class fundraising successfully? I think a lot of organizations say things when they're fundraising, like, we value gifts of every size, 
Every gift counts, right? But how do you value that gift? Because when you value something, that means that you prioritize it and you make um, an effort, right, around understanding not just the impact of those dollars, but actually the kind of shift that's happening when donors who are working class and poor and don't have um, a ton of resources to give are funding the movement. Like th that actually is like an important part of the story of um, giving. And in fact, I think that large wealthy donors are following the leadership of working class donors who give first to movements and demonstrate viability of the work and put all of their momentum and like drive and like stake in the success of the work like you see that at the beginning stages before there's ever a grant right it has to come from that place first because major donors don't take work seriously until it's already taken off right um, until it's already has a kind of bedrock right and if you're doing grassroots organizing work you're not doing it because Daddy Warbucks came in and dropped a stork mouth full of cash on you, right? You're doing it because <laughs> you have to and like you found the way and somehow the money to do it, right? Because people put in who had less to give. Foundations are never kind of the first ones at the table. And I think that what happens when you value small gifts is you actually tell the story of working class donors and poor donors are leading the way for philanthropy, whether foundations know it and recognize it or not, and whether they're willing to understand that there is strategy to where working class donors are putting their money, right? That there's like incredible rigor and there would be incredible outcomes to see if foundations really took seriously where the money goes for folks who are putting what they have down into that movement work, um, building from there rather than saying, what's already proven impactful, what's already well-funded, um, and, uh, and then we'll take it from here. Um, I think that that's part of what it means to do cross-class work is like taking the, those gifts seriously, respecting the people who give it to you, respecting monthly donors, um, calling. We called every single donor like in our first few years and continue to have a practice of calling donors to thank them. That is actually how we found major donors. We didn't have any major donors in the first year. We found major donors because I called everybody who gave any gift. And our first major gift of $25,000 came from a donor who gave $25 at a free party that we had. I had no idea, right? I had no idea. I just saw that they had checked off that they were interested and we didn't take any gift for granted. And also to not be afraid of asking people who are not wealthy to give in ways that are meaningful to them and then to lift up that gift. I think that it's really meaningful to meet with people who give, um, you know, I think one, I did a major donor with someone who was giving 50, who gave $50 at an event. I had a donor coffee with her and she started crying when we finished the meeting because she said, I've never been treated like a donor. Like I give to a lot of movements. She's a, a trans uh, Latinx leader um, in New York, an elder. And she was like, I've been giving to movements my whole freaking life and I've never been treated as a donor and asked what I thought as a donor and been asked to inform your organization and the way that donors get asked that all the time and she was crying and she took her $50 gift and she gave it monthly um, and that gift was one of our first monthly gifts of 2014 right and it came after our relaunch party 
which was open to everyone. And I think a lot of people wouldn't have come to those events, um, major donors, monthly donors, any kind of donor, if it wasn't actually accessible. And that's what started in the way that we do fundraising um, and the way that we reached donors at every level was to have an accessible party where no one was turned away. If you look at philanthropic events where people can come participate at their events, uh, a gala in New York, you can't find a philanthropic gala for less than $400 a ticket. Um, And Third Wave will always kind of have this mentality and this practice of no one turned away um, because it's who we are, right? Like we're a no one turned away foundation and recognize that like the most impactful things happen when you don't set up as an elitist institution, right? I'm really excited that like that ethos has really continued and in many ways just kind of deepened in this next wave of leadership. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for that, right? I, I second and kudos everything you just said. I often come back to like, what, what is the core of the work you're trying to do and who is at the center of that? And if for your grant making, it's about supporting folks that don't have access to dollars, that have often been left out of philanthropy, the ways that you should be fundraising for that should also include the leadership and vision of of those same people. And I, I think it just gets to the heart of it, right? Like, what are you doing? And like, how are you including everyone in that, you know? Talking about like accessibility of of like events and that sort of thing, I think is really big because I think back to like the ways that I got involved with Third Wave from the beginning where I was a part of gender bash planning and like helped to, I forget exactly what I did. I think I helped to do sponsorships or something like that, but I felt so included in the work. And then I went on to like be a like I was a, I I like bartending and so I was uh, a bartender for a like dance party for Third Wave, and and then I come to Third Wave and I'm like wow, folks have thrown tattoo parties, have like donated their art, like there's just so many ways that people have engaged in this work that's beyond buying a table at a gala. You know what I mean? And it's it's really beautiful and it actually engages so many more people in the work. Um, and I. I'm just grateful for that leadership in in how we think about this fundraising. Something I learned when I was a part of um, the Miss Major J Tool Giving Circle, which was, I mentioned a bunch of organizations earlier that we talked about so fierce. Uh, There was the Audre Lorde Project, Sylvia Rivera Law Project, and Streetwise and Safe while they were still around. We started a giving circle to sort of, in that moment, like do cross fundraising because we recognize that oftentimes because this system is set up so that we have to like apply for the same grants and then hope that we get it over another institution we're like why don't we just go around that whole system fundraise all of our donors together collectively and think about how we can work together to to sustain our organizations and i you know sometimes i just get reminded of that in these moments where like organizations and people are doing this work all the time to figure out how we can make ends meet and to be together collectively. And I I think even though there's scarcity, folks are figuring it out and we're going to, and organizations are going to do this work with or without people, 
with or without major donors, with or without foundations. So the question is like, are you gonna are you gonna get behind these organizations to bolster the work that they're doing? For both Anna and I, who are co-directors now, like didn't necessarily ever see ourselves in philanthropy um, and are are totally here kind of by accident and every day for myself at least I'm like pinching myself being like how did I get here and you know Joy Messenger who's our program officer um, was the first person that I ever knew that was a program officer like in my personal life that I was like oh that's a job people have where they work for foundations and they redistribute money um, that wasn't something I was aware of um, and then, you know, my my first real entry point was through the Trans Justice Funding Project as one of their um, fellows. And so just want to give them a shout out for also believing in the power of community and um, folks that don't see ourselves in philanthropy who, you know, like now are leading an organization, um, which again, pinch myself. Wow, she's dreaming. And in terms of hot tips for this moment, I... No, this has been said a lot, and I don't want to say this to sugarcoat this moment. There's such an example here of the world being able to just pivot almost in so many, so many different ways. It's not even like 180 degrees, you know, it's just like um, multidimensional pivot in this moment in just a few months. And even that, like, we felt how slow that felt on um, kind of uh, a big level. And, you know, I think we we have to come out of this COVID crisis different. And that's how our movements are showing up. And, you know, we're here talking about philanthropy. So let's talk about how philanthropy needs to show up different through this. And I do want to give a shout out to folks like General Service, um, folks like the Libra Foundation, who are really showing up differently in this moment. Um, Foundation for Just Society, so many different groups. Um, it's That's a limited list. There's just so much um, power of recognizing that, you know, in philanthropy, we actually do need to approach organizing in the way of like, okay, I'm going to call my cousin and talk to them about what needs to be different. And whether that's like your colleague cousin, or whether that's your actual cousin is, um, is up for you to know. But yeah, I do want to just share, I was in a funder briefing um, the other day, and Nah Hammond from the Groundswell Fund, who also uh, was formerly on the board at Third Wave, shared this quote with me from Just Transitions, um, which is that change is inevitable justice is not. So how do we make sure that the changes that we're doing right now are the changes that we want to see? Um, because it's, it is such a moment where there can be like increased border surveillance and b- border shutdowns, increased attacks on immigrants, on trans people, on sick and disabled people. And it's also a moment where we can be like, hey, actually, everything we're doing right now was built by sick and disabled people and was told it's impossible. Um, your access needs are, are just an impossible request. And and this moment of also knowing that like prisons don't need to exist. Like that's in times of COVID and actually all the time. And yeah, just the work of caregivers and um, so many other folks in terms of um, responding to this crisis. So um, yeah, that's a note I want to leave us on. Thank you, everybody. Um, I'm loving all these shout outs. Can we just take a moment to shout out some of the people who really saw the work through in, in 2014 at Third Wave? I don't know, Fry, if you want to give some shout outs. Yeah, well, so when we just started off in 2014, we had a working board that put so much labor into getting things done. I was the only staff person at the time, and we couldn't have done it without those board members in 2014. Nah Hammond, Wagatwe Wanjuki, 
Keto Ziegler, Alicia J, Samantha Franklin, Catherine Cross, Katie Schaefer, and Betsy Edissary. Three of those folks were former interns. So was I. I was a former intern. And I think, where does that happen, right? That like people who used to be at the intern level are seen as the essential leaders that you need um, to guide your organization to success. And so I think that the list of individuals, they inspire me every day. And I love all those folks. Awesome. Thank you so much. Any last thoughts before we close out this episode? I know that this was a lot of information in one episode, and I hope that listeners will take their time and listen to this in parts or listen to this all at one sitting. Um, I hope that it was informative, especially for any foundations that are listening. Um, But yeah, I just wanted to throw it to anybody. um, If you had any last thoughts you wanted to add. I have a thought, which is just in addition to the cross-class giving question, which is, I think, a responsibility that you have, not just to recognize that like cross-class fundraising is a powerful way to make money, it's also a responsibility to center economic justice in the work. And I think we also have to, as a foundation, make clear that we can't have movements where middle and upper class people are the only people who can actually be trusted to lead them and who can be given the skills to lead them, and who are expected to fundraise in ways that are really designed for that class of people. And I think that a lot of harm happens to movement building when we don't name class, and when we don't recognize that in many ways, like these organizations are only set up for people with class privilege. And we have to be redistributing wealth, and we have to be raising money and centering working class donors but in service to naming that like, we need economic justice, right? We don't just need money for our institutions. We need to be fighting for economic justice every day. And we need to be fighting for economically just movements where institutional power building is not separated from the actual like support and setup for for working class people to lead these organizations themselves, right? And I think foundations They may be willing to say that like people of color should be in leadership, but they are not willing to recognize class as a component of that or as something that is not inherently addressed. So as a foundation, we have to trust and support and fund working class leaders and leaders of color and like recognize that those two things are not the same. right? Um, And we have to fight for economic justice at the same time that we have these like incredible cross-class fundraising strategies. I echo what everyone has said in this episode. Cross-class fundraising is critical for our sustainability as organizations and that our communities are consistently the first to throw down for social justice movements, but that's often not seen as philanthropy, both by the philanthropy field and ourselves, um, because philanthropy has been a place for the most privileged. The only way that I see Third Wave as meeting the flood of requests that we're receiving right now is if we are all doing what we can to stretch our contributions and double down on our commitments this year if you can. Uh, If we've learned anything from the 2008 economic crisis, it is that individuals like you listening right now are the lifeboat for many organizations during moments like these. So I want to thank you all, Rai, Anna, and Kiyomi, for taking time out of your day to talk about this important and incredibly relevant topic right now. And I hope that these experiences that you shared and all of the hot tips are helpful for folks listening right now. You can subscribe to Mike Check Podcast on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Um, and you can listen to any past episodes on our website at thirdwavefund.org slash podcast. <laughs>